This is the AI Artifacts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Brian Warmoth, with Sarah Luger, PhD, and we are back again to go beyond the hype, under the hood, and into the fray to see what's happening in AI this week. Welcome back to our post-Thanksgiving episode. Sarah, it feels like an eternity since we recorded that last episode. And I'm talking news. I'm talking in terms of the calendar days. Uh, how have you been? Time space continuum. Yeah, all of the all of the ways. I've been great. I had a very lovely Thanksgiving with family and friends and made two pumpkin pies. If you can imagine that. That's it. Much respect. Much respect. I've always struggled in the pie department. I I did pies are hard. I did the birds. We didn't do turkey this year. We did a, a Korean Sam themed spread. So I went out on the grill on the patio and I grilled meat out there. It was a great experience. I like it. I mean, we, it was in the middle of the day, so I could, you know, go out and experience the daylight that we don't get in the evenings anymore. So it was wonderful. I, today is a very special episode. I hope everybody appreciates that. One, we are acknowledging and going to be discussing the one year anniversary of the launch of ChatGPT. A mile. Happy birthday, Chat GPT. Happy, Woo, happy, happy birthday. birthday. And I will let you introduce our guest who is also going to participate in our news discussion today. I am very grateful to have a little bit of help as my initial 3 0 lead in the Two Truths and um, has been quickly. Uh, you're, you're, I'm catching up. I'm only one You're at the you. gates. <laughs> yeah, you're at the, 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 the marauders are close. Okay. So. It is with great pleasure that I introduce Mason Del Rio. Mason is a data scientist, and his experience covers everything that is hot over this past year. He's been creating and using generative AI applications with text, image, and video. He also has experience in creating marketing tools and design tools that use generative AI. So he really has generative AI for almost everything. Well. That's that's a leap, but it feels that way when we're going to review the, the different topics he's covered. So, Mason, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. I've heard so much about you, Mason. I can't wait to get into it. Sarah's told me all about your experience, and I, I think you'll be a really great uh, asset for, for what we're about to talk about today. Let's Excellent. get into, as we said, the, the, the first big note on here for the the news this week is between the time we last recorded and now Sam Altman has returned. He is once again ascended to the CEO spot at OpenAI. The board has been reset. There are new members. It appears not all new members have been named and installed yet. We're getting through that. Sarah, how surprised were you when you saw the news that broke? I believe the night we recorded the last episode. I was very surprised. I'm supportive of the stability that this version of the you know possible outcomes supports. So what we have is basically a more how do I say this? A a less altruistic version of OpenAI, a stable Microsoft centric. I think Microsoft is a real winner here. Mm-hmm. Microsoft Sometimes when I hear, like you say, when I hear altruistic applied in this sense, I sometimes feel like it needs a little TM above it because we're talking about the very specific 
breed and intent of altruism of the people who are on this board. So I, I don't necessarily say that because I, I'm making a moral judgment. I just want to make make that clear. If I say altruism in this case, I'm not applying a moral judgment to this new group, but it is a patently different approach to the mission than what the outgoing board members supported. Yes. And let me let me try this a different way. <laughs> so I think that the stability of OpenAI returning to very close to what it was before this drama began is good for OpenAI and it's good for Microsoft. Microsoft is the real winner here. But I do want to note that there are now no women currently on the board, that the challenge itself has made the the company seem a little boringly average, like just another company that's having internal drama. I think there there was a bit of a, a sheen, a polish of of glamour about AI companies that they were run by, you know, individuals who think differently. And in this case, they had this goal of uh, making safe, generative AI that was general. It was AI that had utility in almost every domain of our lives that would make superhuman tools. And it just seems like a company that had a human problem, not a technology problem. And maybe that's a little bit of a pullback to Earth. Mason, let me ask you to enter this conversation. Do you feel like you've seen a regression or an evolution? How would you describe OpenAI right now versus one month ago, let's say? Um, are we talking about the technology or just the state of OpenAI? The state of the company. I, you know, it, yeah. yeah. How do you feel? The state of the company a month ago was definitely more stable, obviously. Right now, it does not look good. I personally think for OpenAI to have this kind of almost like a coup um, happening internally. Um, the CEO of Microsoft obviously was very upset. And just seeing the the chaos ensue after the news broke that Altman was, was removed was just a bad look for AI in general. I can see OpenAI rebounding because they're just such a powerful name in the space. Um, I, and they have the backing of Microsoft, uh, but it does put a little dent in the armor of OpenAI's organization. If you're a siren in the background, that is not me applying an editorial sound effect right now. That is, in fact, a fire truck <laughs> going by. by the way. <laughs> For the, I, I, I don't know if that showed up or not. Mason, <laughs> I agree with Mason, but I want to note that one of the ways this made Microsoft look very good is because in the past, there'd been a little bit of a battle for top AI talent and for Microsoft to have come in at the end and said, we will create a new division of our company that will, that could be a replicant of OpenAI and everyone who works at OpenAI currently is welcome to join with the same pay scale. And, and, you know, you can basically do your job that you were doing at Microsoft. And that was very well received by the actual people who work at OpenAI. I think that's a sea change for Microsoft, who's really been playing catch up. Even a few years ago, folks were like, what did Microsoft just invest a billion dollars in? And now, you know, they're in the game. Mm -hmm. They had millions of downloads of Bing when they incorporated chat GPT technology into Bing. They're still not leading the search. I've used Bing more in the last year than I've used it in easily the last five years. Maybe ever. I I don't know about ever. There have definitely been periods I used it more than others, but for sure in the last five years. 
yeah. So this has been a little bit of maybe the maybe this is the teenage years hmm. of OpenAI. We'll see. I, I, I'm curious. I, to what Mason said, I, I agree. To me, one of the most shocking things has been how out in the open the disagreement was among the people in charge. Particularly, I was just reading reporting uh, on The Verge a few minutes ago that the board as it existed prior to Sam Altman's departure really thought Microsoft would be just fine with them getting rid of him, that that they were completely shocked at the pushback that ensued when they completely took Sam Altman's side and supported getting him back into that position as CEO. And that shows a major miscalculation. I don't know if that's just because people weren't talking to each other, but uh, to Mason's point, through the lens of the way the rest of the United States, at least, let's say, views Silicon Valley and tech and AI, it was it was a bad look. And it showed that people did not have it all together and there was not a coherent shared plan against everybody who should have should have been on the same page from a leadership position. So I'd, I'd say that is that much is pretty clear. Exactly. Yeah. And there are two really good articles that we'll link in the in the, show in notes. the comments yeah. with this. Exactly. And one is from Wired, where it talks about, is OpenAI a place that women leadership, female experts want to be right now? And the other is a deep, that's from Wired. And the other is a deep dive from Charles Duhigg of The New Yorker that is a long and worthy read covering some very important background on OpenAI. So it's much more than than a cursory, hey, this is what's been going on. It actually talks a little bit about the personalities at play. And it's very interesting because I think this is a perhaps fundamental piece that we're going to see a lot more of the dives into who these folks are and what makes them tick. While, you know, there are other figures in technology uh, media that have been taking up a lot of space. And maybe these are some new players who are going to have more attention on them. Can I ask what, and this is to Sarah and this is to Mason too, what did you think of uh, Timney Gebru's response when asked if she would consider being on, she was not asked to be on the board, but she was asked what she would respond with. I believe that's one of the three topics this week that mm-hmm. uses foul language. That, <laughs> and we're trying to... I didn't see how foul she got. I may, have, I may have not read the entire quote. I just know that she said she would rather go back to Google, which is a non probably a non-starter from both, for both parties, considering her history sides. departing there. Oh, it might have been Margaret Mitchell who... who uh, there's been a lot of, of strongly worded takes. Which we'll keep out of for the on, sake of the children. On, because we care about the children. Yes, we'll keep out of. And, uh, and if I have... Many, AR Artifacts uh, podcast is for the children. <laughs> yes, it's for, it's, it's for those of us who have a hard time parsing foul language. So I think a good takeaway is there's been a lot of strongly worded missives on this topic over the past week. And I, I'm sure there, there will be more. This is cannon fodder for stories that are being written at the moment. That's great. Well, let's let's skip over to the next next one. I want to hit two more news pieces at least before we get into two truths and let AI. Uh, and I think maybe Mason might have some thoughts on this one. So the next one we've got is is a look at Pika Labs. Uh, I, I forget if Sarah was this you or Mason that shared this one. I'd love to talk more about this why you me. shared this. Yeah, Mason, what what's going on with Pika Labs? We should know about. Yeah, totally. So in the realm of video with AI, it's a not a very coherent space, or at least not 
as of until now with Pika, uh, they kind of jumped into the scene with videos that from text to video are pretty coherent, at least from the, the demos that they showed in the trailer that they showed for their, for their new product with things like, let's see, runway, they, they did text to video. And when, when you use their product, it, it looks great, but it's not at a point where you can maybe throw it into a, a video editor, do some effects and it would be like a coherent uh, video. Uh, whereas with Pika, it looks like that whatever they're doing in the back end, whatever uh, their data scientists, uh, engineers are doing, these video outputs are coming out much more coherent. And it reminds me of uh, the jump from like Dolly 2 to 3 and the advancements past that. So um, a year ago, we, we were at video being super nascent, super early, whereas now it's looking like more of a, a possibility that it could be used in production in a variety of ways. That's absolutely wild. Can you walk me through some of the use cases that they're envisioning for this? Yeah, so it's similar to the runway suite, which is like image to video. So turning a still image into a moving one just based on the context of the image. I'm sure you could even like just throw the image in, no prompt, and it will it will do something that makes sense to to a human. Things like video to video where you can overlay it with maybe turning a, a regular video of a person into an anime animation or even removing glasses or changing the kind of style of outfit that they're wearing pretty coherently. It, it's, I think it's a big jump in, in video for sure. Let me, let me throw something out there to compare it to, because I think this is probably one of the most, uh, I don't know if I'm using the word appropriately, but I'd say mimetic uses of AI for video that I've seen online in terms of things that have gone viral on social. But I, I don't know if you've seen things like the, the fake Wes Anderson trailers where people have generated artificial f- video of, you know, the first they'll, they'll use AI to, to create, you know, give me, I don't know, Marvel superheroes in a Wes Anderson movie. And then there'll be some like profiles and the people will kind of be there and moving their faces and looking like it, it works for Wes Anderson because you have so many sort of still set up shots of people not doing very much in Wes Anderson shots. And then I think the other one was like Balenciaga runway. That was a fun uh, footage one. Footage yeah. that people have people have done. You know, like you want to see like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars characters in a Balenciaga show. And then the, I mean, it's a combination of video stills and audio that that have been combined in these cases. And the, this was one of the instances that really struck me is like, like, wow, these tools can actually do really really entertaining things. I don't know about professional grade. I think we're still getting there. But you know, from the things you're talking about with Pika Labs, for instance there are definitely companies trying to create production grade tools like this. Sarah, have you looked at them at all? Do you have any thoughts on on the state of this tech? I I have. I one of the things I thought was really impressive was the founders are a couple PhD students at Stanford who said much what uh, Mason has said, which is they started this in March, I believe, and they said the difference between March and now is just incredible. And so if in terms of the quality of the output of these systems, how they've been trained, how they've been improved during that short time span. So this new company has really been saying what many of us have, which is, hey, we're trying this specific thing. And both of these, the founders are grad students in AI, video, NLP, you know, this is their bread and butter, but they, they quit and said, hey, this is the, this is the the wave right now, and they're making it happen. And so they're very actively trying to improve 
3D images so that they could be perhaps in the next film. You know, think of a in, international light magic. Think of more established studios. This is a, a startup that's trying to produce certain types of video, and it sounds like that is on the horizon for them. It reminds me another one that I saw this week that I hadn't seen before is this company HeyGen. Have you heard of it? Either of you heard of this? No. They've got a tool where you can, based on stills, or you can just take, it's basically for creating an artificial video avatar of yourself or a fictional entity, which you can create. And then you can use that rendered avatar to do presentations. You know, if you you think about context for the corporate workspace, like training videos or things, you could do text input and get an output of a believably real looking person delivering this language. And it, it lines up exactly with the kind of things you're talking about here, Mason. I, I was struck. I'll, I'll put a link to the demo I saw in the, in the show notes today. I think we'll talk a little bit more about this in a few minutes, but the rise of generative use cases that really do confuse the senses, to mm-hmm. put it mildly. You know, these are contrived images that look as if they are actual renderings of a realistic thing happening in front of your eyes. And there's a fake Anderson Cooper this week. I Just, missed this. I don't know if you saw <laughs> We're going to have to link yeah. to that. Mason, we're, did you see that this week? I you did know, not. Why Anderson Cooper? But <laughs> that's maybe, you know, no one asks these questions, you know, if you can. This is the stuff. I mean, yeah. to get back to where we were talking about at the beginning of the, the season of the podcast, looking ahead to the election season next year, I it's one thing that I just I cringe a little bit thinking about where we're going to be at in a year in terms of what this tech is at and what it's going to do, hopefully not in a distorting way to the political process. That's a, it's really an important point that should be a concern to us all, but maybe you know, when we talk a little later in the podcast about what has happened in a year, maybe the democratizing force of ChatGPT has helped all of us understand what is possible mm. and have a little bit more reflection mm. upon maybe what they're hearing or seeing isn't true. We'll see. Well, let me, speaking of what is or isn't we'll true, <laughs> let's jump into this week's edition of Two Truths and Let AI. And I'm excited to have two participants on the other side of the screen for the first time in this one. Thank Just you. so you know, and along I with- need, I need Mason. I need got Mason you. here because got you. <laughs> the last two, he got me. Just, just to make sure Mason is fully briefed and for the listeners who might be hearing this for the first time, Two Truths and Let AI is an ongoing competition we have on this show where I come ready with two real news stories and one chat GPT generated story, sometimes with a little extra help from me to polish it up and make things a little bit better. But I put these in front of Sarah and she'll take a guess. Right now she leads me three wins to two losses. So this is this week is a is a pretty important one because it's my chance to catch up. But I'll let her do the guesses first and then I'll let you make your decision, Mason, and I'll, I'll, and we'll find out where everybody's at. I have lost the last two in a row, so I'm on a bit of a downward streak. So let's, I got to salvage this. Is that All true? Has right. it really been oh, two yeah. in a row? I have to go yes. back and look at that. Yes, it has been two yeah. in a row. Oh. This is not doing my ego any, any good at all. All right. Well, <laughs> let me give you number one. All right. Title for this one is, and, and I will say, you know, uh, there has some, some text has been edited in some cases, just to condense it for for length, because I've tried to get these, tried to have these come out balanced, given that the length of the ChatGPT so generated stories were 
were giving me away in, in a couple of episodes. All right, here's one. Talking to chatbots is now a 200K job, so I applied. Hear that? That's the sound of a whole generation adding proficient in prompt engineering to its resumes. The job is more complex than typing into a text box. To be successful, you need to understand how these systems work, have specific tricks up your sleeve, and in some cases, be able to do some coding. I learned that the hard that the hard way after taking a multi-week course, then applying and interviewing for a $200,000 to $250,000 a year prompt engineering job, sorry, role at Hebia, an AI startup in New York City. Not bad, not bad money. I, yeah, I, uh, I think I've seen those jobs listed. <laughs> Here's number two. AI completed Sophoclean play presented at University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown. Using artificial intelligence, Mark DeMauro, a University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown assistant professor of digital humanities, completed one of the most intact works of Grecian playwright Sophocles. On Thursday, that script was read aloud more than two millennia after Sophocles lived. With assistance from the theater department, faculty, and students, the roles of Sophocles, the searchers, read in Blackington Hall to an audience of students and staff. No one but the actors and Demaro knew which parts were original and which ones had been created by artificial intelligence. I would emphatically say success, Demaro said afterward. And now number three. Disneyland integrates AI chatbots for real-time character interactions. Disneyland has just announced a pioneering move to use AI chatbots in real time, aiming to transform the way costume performers engage with park visitors. The renowned theme park is set to blend fantasy and technology by deploying artificial intelligence to enhance the magic experienced by guests within its iconic walls. The AI-powered chatbots will provide performers with on-the-fly information, guiding their interactions based on real-time audio monitoring and live data analysis of guests' behavior and preferences. Disneyland's goal is to create a more personalized, seamless experience, ensuring each visitor encounters characters in a novel and tailored manner. By leveraging advanced natural language processing algorithms, these chatbots are set to redefine the traditional theme park encounter, making Disneyland a frontrunner in the integration of AI for immersive entertainment. Okay. And that's so my I spread. A, okay, right. so, so one is the, the job. One is the and job. $200,000 to $250,000 a year to prompt engineer. I. I think so. If that's the if that's the core aspect, two hundred to two fifty, I think that's absolutely true. Same. Um, Same. I think that that I think that that occurs out there. Two, I'm not going to decide yet because you always get me on the on the literature ones because I think you know I'm a softy for literature. But three, I have a clarifying question. So I am not well versed in the uh, Disney Ove, but I thought. The, the princesses or something aren't supposed to, and also why would you want to be a princess? The queen is the only one who ever has any power, but that's also why I'm not involved in this ecosystem. But I thought they weren't allowed to talk. So what's the point of a chatbot if like part of the mystery is that you have characters that you see and take photos with and hug, but you don't speak to. So I wish I could say more, but I also am not a an experienced <laughs> Disney multiverse person, with the exception of, yeah. of, of the Marvel Universe aspects, which I, I guess, I don't know if those are Disney Universe or how that, I don't know how they work into that. I'd have to check that bi- brand Bible. 
Yeah, I, I my experience peaked when I was of core babysitting years, so I know all of the Little Mermaid songs and stuff. Right. So do you have a um, choice? I'm gonna say three. I think that's. I think that's. You've got number three. All right, Mason. For me, uh, it is between two and three. Two was very meta in in a way where it, was, it seemed like it was being cheeky. The chat. If this was generated by a chatbot, it's a pretty cheeky response. So I I was really leaning towards two. So that would be my guess. Um, but I'm not sure if we have to come to a a conclusion. Do we want to go with two or three? Uh, three is believable, but I could see why you would choose three as well. Yeah, I, it's okay if you'd like. I think that it's okay if we have our own choices. So okay, okay. So what's your final choice? Is it two, two. or three? Okay, you're picking number two. All right. Well, Sarah, you win. You're ahead of me again. You've got. Yes. You finally got. Thank you. You've got a. You've got a comfortable margin again on me. You're, you're now ahead four to two. Nice. Yeah. It was a good guess, Mason. Is- and, and I mixed this one up <laughs> on purpose. I took the second one. The first one was from a Wall Street Journal piece, and I'll, we'll link to this in the show notes. The second one was from the Tribune Democrat newspaper, and it is completely real. The third one was completely made up, and I, I applaud your your perspective on that, Sarah. You probably asked the right question, I, and I honestly I, I don't know <laughs> what what the rules well, are. You you've done a very good job, I would like to say, Brian, of figuring out my logic and reverse engineering it. Because once I I've my error has been telling you my underlying. I've been showing my homework, right? Or showing the work. And so once you realized, wow. I think it's good for the show. I think it keeps the competition better, actually. Yeah, Yeah. it does. Now you've catered to me, but you know that I have a weakness for Greek tragedians, comedians. We've, we've talked, we've talked about this at at length. I also saw this one and I thought it was, it was similar enough to a fake one that I made up a little while ago. Yeah, that you got me I thought it might, might, might be a good strategic move. All right, well, let's dive in. And then, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say that if moving forward, if you'd like to push my absolute lack of knowledge in Disney more, that that is a that is my. Case I like that opening. Uh, one of many. <laughs> okay, but, thank you, Brian. But now you. I now I got to figure out if you're expecting that or if that's an actual weakness I can push on because that these are the these are the questions I have to ask as I put these together each week. It's this is this is like cards against humanity the best way to win is to not actually find the most horrific thing that you say but to know your friends well enough to be able to reverse engineer who would say what Mm -hmm. and to figure out what the overall point who's in the lead and then game it that way (laughs) so that's how you win cards against humanity i love it it's a great game chicago born game wonderful wonderful group behind that like i i think founded by improv writers for like improv graduates of the Chicago improv system. So let's get into the big piece. And now we get to put the spotlight on Mason. So Mason, we already introduced you. This is a little bit different than most of our episodes because we usually record in two segments. But given the way things worked out this week, we decided to try it a little, little bit differently. So come in here. What This is returning to the theme from the beginning of this show. Uh, what do you think changed one year ago when ChatGPT debuted for the public and what has changed since then? Yeah, I would say the biggest change personally and for people that I'm, I, I know uh, that use the tool would be the fact that it's a different interface to uh, obtain information. And obviously you need to be careful with using ChatGPT. You could output some errors depending on prompts that you give it. But 
the fact that I can now ask questions to a a chat bot and it delivers me essentially 95% accurate responses instead of, for my sake, it's I use it for code, asking questions that in the past, a year ago, I would have to scour Stack Overflow or uh, multiple links on Google just to find the answer I'm looking for or just to reverse engineer a problem that I have. Now I have a an assistant that can uh, walk me through a problem or build out a structure for uh, a function that I need to make. It's a that, faster path change. to many fa- faster path to many things. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's much faster to get the right information, especially now with Google being super hard to even prompt itself and to get the information that you need. I feel like ChatGPT is more direct uh, for for information. So I would say that's the biggest leap. Can I ask you, like, per, like personally, mm-hmm. where where has it really impacted your workflows? I could give ChatGPT code that I have and yeah. say where where are the errors that I'm that I'm missing here? Where are some places in this function that I can improve upon? Can I make this function run faster? Can you give me some suggestions? And it'll it can give me uh, two to three uh, suggestions. I could keep asking for different takes on it. So it really and it also yeah when it, when it gives you different takes, it's like oh I never thought to to go that route for this function. So. It really helps me learn. It's 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 almost like a tutor. I wish I had this when I was back in college to to help with classes. It really yeah. is a pretty much a free tutor. So, was yeah. your background? I mean, just to, for the audience, like, was your background then in computer science mainly that you were operating in? Data science, data science, data science. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad Sarah brought you on because I, I really I thought this was a great idea when she told me about your background and experience on this. I, I'm, you know, I'm I have limited use of Python and some JavaScript in my, in my portfolio, but it's very rudimentary, but to what you're saying, you know, when you, for anybody who's not a coder, it, the idea when you, when you, when you run some code and see what it does, the frustration of trying to figure out what went wrong and where can be, it's a, it's a process that takes up time and it takes up time in cycles, you know, as you get it done. So I, I appreciate what you're saying when, if you can shorten that road, and understand, okay, I know it failed. Why did it fail? And get the answer and be able to correct it versus having to scrape through things, you know, swap things in and out to, to test things. It's, it's, it's a huge change for, for anybody, right? Who's, who's, who's doing that professionally. Exactly. And I think it's like the two-sided coin of AI being a good or a bad thing, if you will. It, it I think it, makes us work faster. It makes code work faster instead of having us bogged down in, yeah, the, the fine details. We can find it immediately, the error. And yeah, it's it's the flip side of that. It's We're not going to be replaced. We're going to be augmented. That is the, the mantra that I've lived by since this landed and what I've been saying to, the, to my peers around me in, in the different domains that I've been working with generative AI. These are tools, tools for humans, right? This is not this is not some sort of abstract thing. And I think that if we think of it not as sci-fi, but as something tangible and something that we can use and direct, that brings the power back to us. And it makes it seem less as if it's in the driver's seat and we're in the passenger seat. And this whole scenario that we're talking about with Microsoft's relationship to OpenAI makes it- Let's talk about the implications. What, Sarah, what does this mean for the value of Microsoft's former acquisition, current Microsoft umbrella property, GitHub? Yeah, GitHub was acquired 
and left kind of to its own devices. So it is owned by Microsoft, but it's run as an independent company. And I think that that dynamic energy has kept it being a very productive company. And I'm, that's in no ways a negative comment about Microsoft. It's just Microsoft is a huge company. And I think that when smaller companies are purchased by large companies, they are purchased for their product, they're purchased, it's Acquahire for their team, but there's something about the dyna- dynamic energy around putting out a specific pro- product that is very valuable because Microsoft is a large, mature company. So that, uh, as well as their data, so they have a ton of coding data. I've got a GitHub repo. Mason has a repo. I bet I bet you've got a GitHub repo, Brian. That's just I I have an have. account, and I think that's the most you can say for my my use of it. I also found a really great, really great process for brewing coffee on there one time that I know I bookmarked. <laughs> but yeah, so it's not just for code. Yeah. It's an information repository. Mm-hmm. And so that, in addition to OpenAI's products, helped create Copilot. Copilot is one of the tools that produces what Mason was talking about, mm-hmm. something that helps you. And the name is great, Copiloting You as you write your Python scripts. Well, it's so like so, looking past computer science, what are the most practical applications yeah. for non-computer science people right now that we've seen? I think there's a, a bunch in, in media, media products, right? So Mason and I have had a chance to, to kick the tires of several types of generative AI solutions. So Mason, maybe we should start with text, right? So there's Grammarly, there's now OpenAI's turbo approach to Word, so within the Microsoft suite. But there's also just the fact that OpenAI itself has products that you can use for writing that cover letter, for creating a recipe. Is there anything that you've seen in in the text realm in the last few months or... Is that is that almost the first thing that was attacked and now it's passe? What do you think, Mason? Yeah, uh, just it's to go off of that. text. <laughs> it's a great, <laughs> uh, yeah, like text, I guess. You, you could call it an audio tool, but essentially transcribing video and then boiling it down to text and then, then summarizing that said text, it, it makes life much easier to, I mean, with Microsoft using the technology in their suite, like with, let's see, Teams, there, there are options to summarize meetings, options to summarize presentations or create presentations. That, that's a powerful tool that the everyday person can use, especially in the workforce. Yeah. I'll, I mean, I'll second that. As, a, as, a, as somebody who works on media products every day, to me, to me, the two best applications have been outline generation when you have some ideas and you're looking to just create a path to work around, it can not always on the first try, but it, it can, it can give you a really good path to build a compelling piece around. It doesn't have all the ideas. And I, I really, it's not great for especially long generation of, you know, useful information in a, in a great compelling way, but it can do that. And the other thing is if you're at a really specific juncture in writing or putting something together and you want to say, what are three options for approaching this? It can, it's, it's really good if, at, at helping to solve the writer's block program problem with some useful 
ideas. Usually, usually not, not in every case. Sometimes it's completely useless, but it, you give it a, ask it, give me three more. You know, you can, you can sometimes you know, get, get to the point where it's very helpful there. I agree. I think that the listener of our podcast might notice over the past year, even, even longer, especially during COVID that if they've been on zoom calls with sales people mm-hmm. or yeah. other group meetings that there has been another participant in the meeting and that was a bot recording you either via zoom or whatever the proprietary call interface you were using and so obviously the googles and the microsofts of the world have been developing this technology but while but when we think about text it's not just generating text from a prompt it's also taking audio information and creating an output that then you can say from this output, you know, Whisper was one that, that we looked at several months back, you know, from this output, tell me what the top, the, the, the top three needs of this client are, you know, a great summarization for an hour of back and forth. Let me ask you, the answer may be no from both of you, but I want to share a scenario that's gone through my head. And I have not been on either side of this scenario, full transparency. I haven't been on a lot of sales calls anyway, the last like six months. But one thing I've wondered about is how long will it be before I end up on a call with somebody in something like a sales call where the person on the other end is using like chat GPT or some LLM use on the other end to try to respond and convince me of something, right? Because we spoke about this on a previous episode that it, it seems to be one of the most potential, when we talk about like, you know, the political process and democracy, like it might get very, very good at convincing people of things. Right. And I I wonder, have either of you felt that you were on the other end of a conversation in on the phone with somebody who was using an LLM in real time? I, I think that there are going to be ways that will be kind of a... I wonder about this in customer service even. I mean, mean, if neither of you have, I wonder about this, like next time I'm reaching out about a canceled order or something, I wonder how how it's being utilized by customer service teams. Well, ironically, the first time I received an email from OpenAI, Mm -hmm. I responded, I thought it was a bot. Mm -hmm. And I said, "Hey, I, something's off with this email. I think I think you're a bot." Mm-hmm. And the guy got back to me and he said, um, "I thanks for letting me know that. I because I thought I was being spammed." Yeah. And and he said, "You know, you're not the only person who said that." I said, "Yeah, something about your tone was off, man." Yeah. And he was like, "Thanks for the feedback." Because that's the thing is that if the if the human is confused for a bot. That's not good. That ha- does happen. Yeah, that speaks for the strength of the technology right. right now, honestly. And perhaps Ma- the bedside manner of the technologist mm-hmm. who was reaching out to me. Yeah. You know, Mason, was- have you had any uncanny valley experiences with 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 OpenAI or, or not? Not necessarily ChatGPT, but any any LLMs. No experiences personally, but I have seen this being a possibility. Like the other day, I saw on social media that there was a a cute little robot that on the back end is using GPT-4's vision on top of GPT-3.5 to see what's in a room and talk to a person if it wanted to and respond back and forth. But the only problem was the latency. It took like, you heard like a dial-up sound. It was a cute robot that when it was thinking, it had this dial-up sound. And it took about 10 seconds to actually talk. So we're almost there. But yeah, obviously the latency 
would be an issue. But in the future, that's going to be obviously shortened down. Well, you speak so to something that's, to that's that. really, really been impressive to me, which is the ability of like one agent to talk to another and produce outcomes, you know, whether that's you know, a robot, robotic parts talking to a computer with, you know, an internet connected chat GPT account, right? Yeah. And a lot of these robots talking to each other is actually how they've been training these uh, systems. Yeah. Well, what, what's next? What's next? I mean, this is, this is where we're at. We've seen, we've seen all of these use cases develop. What's, what's really ahead in 2024 and you know, is 2024 going to go at a, an accelerated pace based on what we've seen in 2023? I mean, I think so, but let me, we have just talked about text before we jump into what is next. <laughs> Mason and I have also like, as I said, to begin with Mason has a very deep background in this. So mm-hmm. text that was video to text, video to text, to text summarization image. So Mason has a couple different experiences taking images. In one case, it was brand images to create other brand images, so yeah. something like a slideware. But then a second instance, Mason, do you want to do you want to explain what that use case was? Oh, I missed this. Yeah, I'd love to hear more about this. So I'll try to be as vague as possible, just for personal reasons. No, it's okay. The, but I, yeah. yeah. So I I've done several projects involving textiles where the the process of training a model on images like assets and creating a model that learns a style learns learns like a brand style and creates uh, icons it translated very well to like real world objects you could in in the design aspect using generative ai it can produce uh, viable out- outputs in the brainstorming phase in uh, the the inspiration phase and the peers that I worked with during these projects were a little hesitant, but also optimistic about it, which I think everyone is. They saw the potential for this technology and they weren't scared to embrace it. They want to continue working on it and, and iterating upon it. There, there's a lot of untouched territory when it comes to images because there's so many things you can design really aid in the creative process. So my experience that I can't really dig into, it's really, really eye-opening to see how much ground can be discovered and how many startups may arise from it. There's plenty of stuff to work with in in images. Let me just be clear, Mason. Mm. What you're saying is in the past year, we've had ChatGPT launch and folks have been playing around with it. I think it's a democratizing force. I think it's opened up a lot of folks' eyes. You know, for many people, sci-fi was their first experience with artificial intelligence. This has now given people a different perspective. But with DALI, you're presenting prompts to a data set, if you want to think of their large language model, and it gives you a response. The tools that you have been working with, you bring you know, BYOD, bring your own data, and you bring these data sets, use them within the rubric of LLM data organization. Here's a template using then, that. Here's a poster. Here's yes, an yes. email newsletter ready to go with the branding, right? So it's data sets that's organized in a way that can be consumed by these systems. A use case that's specific. Mason's talked about 
you know, branding, image branding, and then output mm -hmm. that is, to your point, gets rid of the blank page problem, right? It is yeah. not perfect, but it's a time saver. It's a starting point that's farther along than you would have been at otherwise in some cases. I forget. Have we talked about, are, you, are either of you fans of the webcomic Akewood? Have I brought this up with you before? No. It's a... It's a wonderful to be linked. Yeah, I'll put the, the, I'll put a link in here because <laughs> it's it's a really fascinating webcomic by this this guy named Chris Onstead. But he had an what I at the time was kind of a novel use of AI to basically put in the his corpus of work and get it to help him out with scripts. And it's kind of a tongue in cheek thing, and you have to really understand the humor of Akewood to get it. But I'll share this with you. It's an interesting example of of AI use. Please, please do. I think that there's a lot of, there's a lot of ground that has not been covered by, by this kind of methodology. Yeah. And so that's why places like Pika are getting funding or, you know, are new and know that there's space for them to get funding. But beyond, we've talked about text, we've talked about images, there's also video content. Mm -hmm. So you brought up for earlier. example, this is recorded on Squadcast, which was purchased by Descript. Mason has analyzed many video generative solutions, mm -hmm. which get rid of ums, ahs, dead space. So the output that you're listening to is going to make us all sound like better orators than we are, more quick on our a little feet, bit more frenetic. while the reality is a little bit, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly, a little bit more frenetic, while the reality is that we are human, like everyone else. And that sort of slightly better version, at least what we've described to these software systems as being an error that needs to be corrected, is why the output sounds a certain way. And you can tell the difference between human errors and computer errors by what what is being corrected. Mm. So I think I think the video the video solutions out there are very impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Mason, do you have any any recent ones that you've looked at? Video besides Runway and Pika, not really, but I just haven't delved into it as deep as I could. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. We, we've, yeah, there's a lot of cool, a lot of cool products yeah. out there. So. Well, well, I do want to move ahead and we're, we're, we're coming up on time, but I want to get into the forward looking stuff too. I, I have a few of these in my head and I want to know where your heads are at, but what are the real like milestones or defining events that you're waiting to see happen? Or what do you, what do you expect to see Based in 2024, based on what we've seen in 2023? I think that this um, kind of shakeup at OpenAI, which was it's kind, of a, kind of a shake, but maybe no up, I think that's going to remind us all that these are normal companies that have normal company challenges. I think that the success Microsoft has had as a very stable company is going to be positive because it will allow many other Fortune 500 companies outside of the AI space to adopt artificial intelligence. So I think there's going to be a huge enterprise push. You know, we've been talking a lot about the generating, that the verb here of creation. Mm -hmm. But one of the secret aspects, and I would say the holy grail of enterprise desires would be enterprise search, right? So generative approaches are very good at creating things, but they're also very good at discovery. And over the past decade, especially, we have a ton of material and content that's been developed inside organizations. And I think enterprise searches is going to be 
a very interesting place for some of these companies to go. So I echo that interest. Created yeah. This, yeah. Circling, circling back to the what we were saying about Bing and what this has done for Bing yeah. alone. But I also am very fascinated by what Bard's doing and what Google's going to do there. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, that's a recurring question I keep hearing is, you know, is, is Google going to catch up with OpenAI or is Microsoft really going to steal the show and pull ahead in ways that people didn't anticipate a few years ago? So yeah, I'm with you on that. I, to me, it's, it's a really great product when you can do citations. And I'm really interested in this as somebody who provides informational web content in, in a lot of cases, you know, as a journalist, you know, it, are you going to get citations and be and have a voice through the recommendations that are getting provided to people? And is it going to be a path to people recognizing your brand like search turned into for, you know, years and years of SEO optimization wars among major news outlets? Are we going to see a new iteration of that in the age of AI search? I think AI search is is going to be changing. I also think that people are going to not be using search as much. Why would I search for things on the internet when I know that most of the material out there is created by a non-human without intentionality? I think that the walled gardens of, say, the New York Times, where people pay a fee, this is like the portal of 20 years ago. You get on your Yahoo and you get your games, your shopping suggestions, wire cutter. So they've got Wordle and the crossword Mm -hmm. shopping suggestions. You've got opinion pieces. You've got style, all of these kind of magazine style articles in addition to news. Mm -hmm. So I I think there's going to be a big split in our consumption. And I think more people are going to be hanging out on Reddit or in different communities where there's, where there's a sense of community. What do you think, Mason? Yeah, that I would, yeah, that's a perfect answer. I I was going to say, and and I've mentioned before that I myself use this instead of the internet more often than than not, or Google more often than not. I use ChatGPT to um, answer questions about taxes or about coding, about just everyday life. So it it really is just a, a transformative technology, a transformative product that I can see. It's already been adopted pretty massively, but even more so in the future with the new at Microsoft Ignite. They they it's a conference where they talked about all the new features in their uh, suite. And co-pilots in every software you can think of, like Excel, Word, Teams, and their new... I'm excited about this the most, uh, Loop, Microsoft Loop, where it's like a Notion life organizer, but with Microsoft's I want to see, um, I see more of that. I, have, you, I actually haven't looked into that. Yeah, so it, it's. I'm excited for that. Excellent. Do you think... So, guys, let me throw this back at you. Mm-hmm. I, I'm a little concerned that the distraction of what went on at OpenAI um, may turn the company to be a little bit uh, slower to roll out perhaps their GPT-5 that they announced. You know, this was the announcement, I think, a week before all of this went down. That they they announced they announced is on a plan somewhere, right? So let's let's be clear. They haven't trained it. They and they may still be figuring out what it looks like. But yeah. And but that could take that could take a year. Mm -hmm. Right. So they I wonder if all of the cool products that Mason has been looking at, the tools that are coming out in different content and media realms, if that's really going to be the sandbox that we're playing in for the next year, and perhaps there aren't uh, sea changes hmm. like there were a year ago. I, I, I do think that. there's a concern of 
plateauing. And I think that that concern is well-founded. Yeah. I, on that note, I really wonder as LLMs race to keep up with each other, will it become more of a level playing field? I, and I wonder, you know, is Adobe going to benefit as much as the companies that are coming up trying to compete with Adobe? I mean, Adobe's made some really interesting strides with Firefly and its its own responses to, you know, Dolly and say mid-journey. When you mentioned Adobe, my first thought was, yeah, Firefly and also just the fact that startups creating these features in these domains, just creating a f- one feature that works really well and being absorbed by a big company. Look I at Canva, happening. like to, to be, yeah. you know, not even to get into uh, AI, but yeah, exactly. That's great. Well, we're coming up on time. I, I want to see, I, I wanna, Sarah, do you want to raise any other questions before we, we close this episode out? I thought that there was an interesting... I, I think that this is great to have an opportunity to talk to a real practitioner, you know, someone who actually walks the walk and where the rubber hits the road, applies important use case human logic to these tools, right? Like, what do I want? What do I need? And Mason has really done that through several domains. But I want to also note that Maybe with generative AI and the transition of this last year, it's kind of reminded us about the human aspect. You know, in all of these cases, there's still a role of the human. You know, uh, we're excited about the preliminary results. You know, we're saying, hey, get rid of the blank page mm-hmm. problem. But these are not home runs. These are not knocked out of the park. Not yet. What do you guys think about? Yeah. What do you guys think about the best, like if you could say, okay, over the past year, what is the best scenario you've seen of generative AI? Mason, I'll let you go. When it comes to side projects and creating models that can capture a style, really nailing, we've talked about it in the truth or lie, prompt engineering. That's a very important piece in this technology. And if you just know what the model needs based on the style, based on how you trained it, you can actually guide these models into exactly what you want. In my experience, it's been like 70%. It does do that. And then 30% of the time, it's just like really hard to get to wrap your head around how it wants it to be um, explained, like telling it to output a, a, an image of a house with a red roof. Um, sometimes it'll just completely miss the mark uh, and you have to go into further detail. And even then some models don't um, reach that uh, perfect output. So I would say, Prompt engineering is a very important thing when it comes to this kind of thing. And in the future, it's going to be more, more vital. Yeah, I'll close out saying, you know, the, some of the most impressive, at least ideas, I don't know if I've seen them, I haven't seen them personally in practice because I'm just seeing products being marketed at this point. But uh, get back to the, the conversation we had a few weeks ago about use cases for natural language processing with helping people who are experiencing, you know, brain problems or, you know, issues like Parkinson's disease and the ability to improve quality of life in communication problems there, or look at something I was just reading about the other day was applications for neuroatypical people who are trying to engage in the workplace or something and mask, you know, what otherwise might be perceived as shortcomings and be able to otherwise participate and do things professionally. And that it's not, this is not, you know, this is not me trying to judge people who have different, you know, neural setups, but I'm saying it could enable them to participate better without encountering the friction that they encounter from people they might not otherwise be able to deal with in an effective way. That makes sense. 
Brian, you and I looked at some research in that area, I think five years ago, yeah. some very interesting stuff about how to do, you know, often sentiment analysis is used to evaluate yeah, but attention well deficit disorder or something, for instance. Yeah. yeah. What if, yeah, what if they, there are research groups out there using sentiment analysis to help people understand mm-hmm. who have, who have different cognitive processing mm-hmm. skills and who are not getting the feedback that many of us get about emotions in yeah. In interactions. There's, no, there's no substitute for empathy on the other side, but I am very interested in its ability to help people be more connected and communicate more effectively. Absolutely. I, yeah. I agree. Yeah. COVID has taught us yeah. nothing. Mason, thank you so much. This was a real pl- privilege. I, I appreciate it. Just like Thomas, a couple weeks, a few more than a few weeks ago, we're, we're on episode six already. I love hearing about this from people who are using it in ways that, not, that I'm not. Sarah has a little bit, but thank you so much for joining us. Of course, y'all. And I appreciate you guys having me. This is, it's an honor and I'm sure this will be a, a, a very cool episode to look back on in the future. Open so. Yeah. What yeah. did we think then? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, yeah, we didn't <laughs> even talk about, yeah, we, we, should revisit yeah we didn't talk about open source. Now I'm thinking, oh goodness, maybe we should put in the notes. Like what, what do we think the next year will be? Thank you. Thank you for your participation, Mason. Of course. Absolutely. It's, a, it's a pleasure as usual. Thank you to all the listeners out there for joining us for episode six Uh, We'll see you next time here on the AI Artifacts Podcast. That's a wrap on this week's episode of the AI Artifacts Podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll visit us at AIartifacts.net. There you can subscribe to our Substack show notes newsletter and discuss anything you just heard. If you like what we're doing, we'd love for you to subscribe to this podcast and rate us on your platform of choice. The show is produced by Brian Wormuth and Sarah Luger. The music on the show is from Vanishing Horizon by Jason Shaw and is used under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 United States license.